This is a 980 CKNW podcast. You're tuned in to Get Connected. It's a special travel edition. We are actually in China. I've got John Beeler here with me on this trip. We're visiting Huawei to learn more about the company, its culture, and uh, how they actually make things uh, as well. Uh, John, this has been a, a fascinating trip so far. Yeah, our timing for this trip couldn't have been any better, I think. Uh, we got to see some things that uh, most people don't get to see. Um, while, we were, while we've been here, we, uh, Huawei actually had a press conference to address the U.S. concerns, uh, which you know we would never get to come to uh, normally, uh, and this trip was planned months ago. So it's uh, um, just really interesting timing, uh, a really interesting time to be at uh, Huawei and be in China to see what's going on and uh, sort of get an insider look at uh, the situation. And and also just get an understanding, a better understanding of how big uh, Huawei actually is. Well, I want to uh, just uh, play a clip uh, from the press conference uh, that we uh, attended. Uh, and this is uh, Song Luping, and he is the chief legal officer for Huawei. Politicians in the U.S. are using the strength of an entire nation to come after a private company. They are using every tool they have, including legislative, administrative, and diplomatic channels. They want to put us out of business. This is not normal, almost never seen in history. The fact is, the U.S. government has provided no evidence to show that Huawei is a security threat. There's no gun, no smoke, only speculation so no <laughs> no smoke no gun uh interesting uh comment uh they are struggling to uh fight uh i guess uh an adversary that is completely unpredictable and irrational <laughs> exactly um and you know there's no evidence uh no one can prove anything yet um one of the things we got to see while we were here is their cybersecurity areas and um you know the rigorous testing and the certification process that they go through. You would think if there is any kind of smoking gun, uh, those systems would kick in and take advantage of that. Well, they adhere to all uh, well dozens of international standards when it comes to that. So in today's program, uh, it's a really fascinating one, and I, I really encourage you to uh, tune in. Uh, we will be going through the history of uh, Huawei. We've uh, got a great guest. Uh, his name is uh, Brian Chamberlain. He'll tell us how it all began. And after, uh, John and I will uh, talk about our visit to the uh, manufacturing facility where they actually make the phones, and also their European-style campus. It's the most amazing uh, campus that I've ever seen and we'll fill you in on all of that. You're listening to Get Connected here on the Chorus Radio Network. We'll be back shortly after this. You are back with Get Connected. Uh, this is a special travel edition. Myself and our Get Connected uh, experts, John Beeler, we are in China visiting Huawei. We are uh, up in Shenzhen and uh, we'll also be in Hong Kong. And this has been a very fascinating trip. You, you just can't understand the the scale and size of uh, of Huawei how big they uh, are here and uh, how many employees and campuses they have 
I think, though, to help us understand uh, Huawei and, uh, you know, Huawei in the West, why we are where we are now, it's good to go look back at the history. We've got a, a great guest for that. His name is Brian Chamberlain. He's the executive advisor for the Carrier Marketing Consultants Office at Huawei. We are in Shenzhen, China. And uh, I really want to thank you for joining us today, Brian. Thank you very much. So I wanted to get you on the program. Uh, you are an American. You've been with Huawei uh, a little bit now, how, three years? Three years now. And you came from Cisco. That's correct. What brought you to Huawei? Layoffs. Um, I was not laid off, but so many of my colleagues were laid off that I started finding the environment not the place where I was going to um, enjoy working. Big move, moving an entire continent and, and country. And uh, entire continent and country with my family. Uh, the biggest move was not for me. The biggest move was actually for my family. And how are they adjusting? Much better than I expected. So let's talk about Huawei. There's so many different uh, perceptions, uh, misconceptions about the, con- uh, about the company, uh, especially with the current geopolitics uh, happening with uh, America. I wanted to talk about the history where Huawei came from. And, I, you know, I think from what I've learned so far, and you've done a great job uh, explaining this to me, it uh, really starts back in 1980 in Shenzhen, uh, where we uh, are right now, a, a sleepy little fishing village of about 30,000 people. That, that's correct. So Huawei began in 1987. But to really understand the environment, you have to go back to 1980 when China began this opening up and reform process. Because the transformation that happened in Shenzhen was truly incredible. It went from a sleepy fishing village with 30,000 people to what is today uh, one of the most modern in, uh, cities with close to 16 million people. You will not recognize the two places. That is a, a large amount of people in such a short period of time. And just geographically for the listeners, uh, Shenzhen is uh, pretty well just above Hong Kong. That's correct. And, and Shenzhen was chosen by China to become a special economic zone. Uh, because of its location to Hong Kong. Because it was close enough to Hong Kong, they could develop relationships with the banks to help them bring in investment money to help Shenzhen grow. Let's talk about this special economic zone, because I think most people look at China, communist, socialist state, uh, the state owns everything, but why set up these special economic zones? So if you look at the condition in China in 1980, things were not good. Um, And the government recognized this. This is when um, uh, Deng Xiaoping had taken over power. And he recognized that the government had failed to help the country prosper under the old rules. And so he said, we need to find a new path. He has these great metaphors. Um, uh, One of them is crossing the river by feeling for the stones, uh, which means I don't know how we're going to get there. I just know that we need to go to this stone next, and then we'll feel around, and we'll find the next stone to jump to. Uh, And so that's how he viewed these special economic zones. We're going to give five different regions autonomy to make their own rules and see how that plays out and see whether we can learn lessons that we can apply to the rest of the country. Uh, And out of those five zones, uh, Shenzhen has really become the hallmark of it because of the spectacular growth this country has seen. 1980, it's started as a special economic zone. Uh, We go forward uh, seven years, 1987, Mm -hmm. and this is when Huawei is started. That's correct. So seven years later, um, the entire city is under construction. We've seen a massive amount of people moving to Shenzhen uh, to support the construction. Uh, But our founder, Ren Zhenfei, had been working in an electronics factory here. 
uh, but had gotten laid off. And he's trying to think of what I'm going to do next. Um, so he pulls together um, five of his friends. They scrape together as much money as they can. It turned out to be a tiny amount, $3,500. Um, but thanks to a relationship he has in Hong Kong, he's able to go there, buy this telephone equipment from a Canadian company. This is the Canadian connection, which I thought was interesting. Mitel equipment, PBX equipment. That's correct. So he would buy the Mitel equipment from Hong Kong, come over to China, and then resell it. Now, the challenge for him at that time was that China had also recognized the problems in their telecommunications infrastructure. China had one of the lowest telephone penetration rates in the world in 1980. Um, and so the country decided to invest a massive amount of money into telecommunications and open it up to all the Western vendors. So what happened is between 1980 and 1987, all the Western companies came in uh, and they were building lines like crazy, trying to connect um, the cities on the coast, all the big cities, uh, to the telephone network. Um, Mr. Wren, however, was trying to come in and could not get any traction in the big cities, so he ran out to the countryside, uh, found the places uh, where the big vendors simply were not supporting them, uh, and he was able to be very successful in that regard in that respect. Within three years, he took the company from nothing to making $17 million a year. What's interesting uh, is what comes next. Uh, he uh, basically decides to shift the company somewhat. Absolutely. Um, because one of Mr. Wren's traits is he's never willing to think about how successful he's been. He's only thinking about where he can fail and what's going to go wrong with the company. And what he realized way back in 1991 is that if his supply of Mitel equipment was ever taken away, his company would fail overnight. This was not going to be acceptable to him. So he took all the profits, and I do mean all of the profits, and dumped them into R&D. They hired as many engineers as they could straight out of school and got busy building their own telephone switch. Uh, Four years later, we call this the CNC-08. That was the first product Huawei ever developed. And so this is a telephone switch uh, that uh, he would resell to telecoms across China. That's correct. It was a telephone switch. It was a digital telephone switch that you sell to the city when they want to um, install phone lines in their city, to the local telephone operator there. And what made it special was that it was the highest capacity switch on the market. Um, so he wasn't satisfied with what the Western vendors were providing because when you look at China's population, and back then we still had close to a billion people, the solutions out there were way too expensive. Um, they were not providing China's scale. Uh, but the biggest problem they had was the user interfaces were entirely in English command line. Now, if you can imagine in rural China, where are you going to find a person who can read the English manual, understand it, and then configure it in English? Those would be far and few between. Far, far and few between. You're exactly right. Um, so when we came in with a Windows-based interface using uh, Chinese language, um, it was incredible at how much adoption we found. Um, and that allowed us to grow phenomenally uh, during that period. Where did he go next? So next, again, Mr. Wren does not send on his laurels. What he recognized was that uh, one of the strengths we had compared to the Western vendors was that we were using modern technology. And this drilled into his head the idea that technology is changing so fast that a top-tier Western vendor who doesn't invest in R&D for five years can get overtaken by a little startup like Huawei. You know, that was a powerful lesson. And he said, we cannot ever stop investing in R&D. So he poured money into optical networks and into mobile networks. 
Uh, and within a few years, I think this takes us up to 97, we were able to launch solutions in both optical and mobile. What I found interesting, though, was um, just how we really focused on the rural areas of, of China. There was an interesting story uh, that we were told about, uh, um, you know, they're going out and customers were having problems with rats eating some of the telecom wiring. <laughs> well, that's exactly right. If you look way back uh, in China, in the rural areas, uh, there was uh, a huge difference between what a data center looked like in the big cities where it's clean, modern air conditioning, and then you go out to the rural countryside and it's a closet, and that closet might or might not have a working air conditioning, and it certainly does not have the clean environment. One of our, our teams, when they started getting these failed products on, uh, from around the country, uh, we would look at it and said, how did this board blow up? And one of them got the idea that let's test it by pouring pee on the board. And funny enough, that's how the board blew up. Yeah. Um, and what it turned out was that rats were coming in, and, you know, rats live, they eat, they pee. And when they peed on the board, it goes up in flames. And so once we realized that, it made us start rethinking how we build these products and how can we protect it from this kind of environment. Um, many of the Western customers had been living solely in the, uh, the big cities, so they only seen the clean, safe environments, uh, whereas we're having to operate in a much different environment. And instead of trying to tell our customers, you better clean it up, you better make your data center look like that, we went the other direction. We need to make our products so they can work in that kind of environment. So no surprise later. Fast forward 10 or 15 years, we're one of the first vendors that are building fully outdoor products. Uh, so from my perspective, we've been building outdoor products from a long, long time ago because some of those data centers were not much different from being outdoors. So we're into the late 90s. Uh, we get into the 2000s. What's happening? So in the 2000s, this is actually a very difficult time in the West because this is when the dot-com bubble blows up. This is when we see WorldCom failing. There's overinvestment. So all of the big vendors are downsizing. They're, they're compressing. But in China, the country is exploding. China is laying fiber optic. What they realized is they now have all these independent telephone systems, but they're not connected. And, and it's making communications across the country very difficult. So they lay millions of kilometers of uh, optical lines. And also the mobile industry is starting to take off. And China Mobile themselves bring in 20, 220 million telephone subscribers. So we have explosive growth happening in China, whereas in the West, things are slowing down. And that's creating a lot of turmoil in the industry. If you look at the uh, history of telecoms in the West, you'll see lots of bad things. Uh, but if you look at what was happening in China, again, you just see another era of explosive growth at Huawei. What's interesting uh, throughout all of this, and I think this is an important point for the listeners to really understand, Huawei is not a state-owned company. Obviously, you know, China is a different government uh, than, than the West, but uh, China is, or sorry, Huawei is owned by its employees. That's correct. Huawei has never been a state-owned company. This began uh, in the very early days of R&D, because when Mr. Ren started bringing on as many engineers as he could afford, he actually brought on more than he could afford. And so giving shares of the company to the employees uh, became one of the ways that he could uh, compensate them and attract them to his company versus the other state-owned companies that we were competing with. And that was all done before the whole legal framework for an employee-owned company was. Um, so I find it very funny when people come and question our ownership structure. They really don't understand that this company was formed before the laws that enabled the company were fully formed. Uh, so when you th see things and they're not exactly how they work in the West, 
Well, of course. <laughs> so mobile obviously has been one of the, the large growth areas uh, for Huawei, uh, not only on the networking uh, side. Uh, they were a big uh, first runner in 4G, for example. That's correct. We were a big runner in 3G, in 4G, and now in 5G. And the reason we were big forerunners in all of these technologies was because we paid very careful attention to our customers. And I can give you the example, our first European customer, uh, this was Telefort uh, in the Netherlands. Uh, They were telling us how expensive it was to find sites to build mobile uh, mobile phone base stations on. And so we helped them rethink how you construct a base station, uh, moving a lot of the equipment from inside a equipment room and move it onto the tower. So we were able to reduce the size by almost 90%. uh, And that was instrumental in us getting a foothold into Europe. So obviously they could save on real estate costs, but when you reduce the size of equipment like that, uh, the power consumption goes down dramatically as well, which is another cost. The power consumption to the equipment goes down, but also by moving the radio equipment right next to the antenna, the power going out to the receivers increases. So we were able to reduce the power consumed, but increase the power broadcast. Uh, It was a double win. We're speaking with Brian Chamberlain with Huawei. He's their executive advisor for the Carrier Marketing Consultant's office about the history of Huawei. Some really fascinating stuff there. When we come back from the break, we're going to continue our conversation with Brian and talk about security and cybersecurity and some of the fears and concerns of the West. You're listening to Get Connected here on the Chorus Radio Network. Back after this. You're back with Get Connected. Mike Agarbo here. We are in China. We are visiting Huawei, trying to learn more about uh, the company, uh, visiting the various campuses uh, and uh, assembly lines. And I implore you to stay tuned. If you love robots and technology, uh, John and I will be talking about our visit to one of their uh, manufacturing uh, facilities where they put together uh, their P30 smartphone. And it is Amazing! They uh, punch out one of these phones every 30 seconds uh, on uh, just one line. So you can imagine the volume that they can uh, be uh, producing. And we'll also talk about their amazing campus. It is like a mini Europe. 12 cities uh, modeled after European cities uh, and uh, housing and uh, employing 40,000 employees in just this one location. But before we get to that, we're going to continue our conversation with Brian Chamberlain, the Executive Advisor for Carrier Marketing uh, at the Consultant's Office. So you guys are one of the top tele- telecommunication uh, network providers uh, in, in the world now. We are in an interesting time. Uh, a lot of geopolitics are happening, especially uh, with the U.S. Uh, there is a big perception that Huawei is spying on its customers. How do you respond to that? The perception that I have here is quite the opposite. Huawei is the strictest in terms of cybersecurity rules. Um, When I first arrived in China, uh, I was given a list of these mandates. You will never touch customer data. You will not log into a customer's site without their written permission. And if you ever violate these rules, we will fire you in a second. I think Facebook could use some of these. (laughs) (laughs) Remember, I came from Western companies, and there's no Western company that had any rules quite as strict uh, as what Huawei has. Um, And so when I hear what's being told and when I see what we are being told, there's a big disconnect. Uh, And so there's a lot of information. And, you know, I find part of it is uh, Huawei and China at fault because we've been very bad at communicating uh, our processes, uh, our history. 
the story that you heard about Huawei's history is one of the first times that has been told. And so we need to get better at telling uh, people about what really is happening here in China uh, so they, they can understand it's not that fundamentally different uh, than how things that work in the West. Um, but we do have these very tight rules about security and about privacy. So these accusations that Huawei would plant black doors, the, black, the back door would be useless to me because if I ever used it, I've now broken that cybersecurity rule and I'm out. The idea that we would spy and collect data, again, customers who are employees who do that are not employees for very long. One of the fundamental differences is uh, in a big company, these things will happen. And in the West, they get dealt with quietly. We have all these privacy rules that said uh, when somebody misbehaves, we'll deal with it and we'll brush it into the table. Uh, in China, that doesn't apply. Uh, there's an ethics site, uh, and I just got an email yesterday, the, the ethics email, and it lists, here's all the good things that happened, and here's a list of the people who broke the rules. Here's what they did and what happened to them. Name and employee ID, what they did and what their consequences were. So if you ever violate the rules, not only will you face the consequences, but all your friends will know, and that reputation will follow you around forever. Your culture, from what I've uh, been uh, described, uh, read about, uh, kind of more uh, humility, you know, reflection. Uh, mm-hmm. Do you think that's going to have to evolve in this new era? You're being kind of attacked by uh, very aggressive countries. Right. What has to evolve uh, is the attitude that all we have to think about is developing the greatest products. So for, for 20, 30 years, all Huawei would focus on was developing products. Uh, when I first arrived in China, we were explicitly told, you will not talk to the media. If you talk to the media, uh, only a couple of things are authorized to be said. Last year, that had to change, uh, and that change came all the way down from Mr. Ren. So the company recognizes that in the current environment, we cannot maintain that single-minded focus on the customers. Now we have to pay attention to the other stakeholders in the market. Uh, And that's going to be difficult for Huawei to adapt to. The whole company was set up to listen to customers to capture their requirements. Uh, There was no infrastructure in place for coming up with good marketing messages and delivering that out to the world. And so this is something we have to develop. I want to thank you for your time today. Well, thank you very much for having me. That was Brian Chamberlain, the Executive Advisor for the Carrier Marketing Consultant's Office at Huawei. Again, we are in Shenzhen, China, visiting Huawei, finding out uh, all about their manufacturing, their culture, their history. When we come back from the break... It is fascinating. We got to actually go to one of their manufacturing lines. It's run completely by robots. Sure, there's a few uh, humans there to make sure the robots are doing their job, but uh, the technology is amazing. We also visited their huge, huge campus that uh, is basically modeled after European cities. It's like a a Disney World uh, almost, and we'll be telling you all about that as well. You're listening to Get Connected here on the Chorus Radio Network. Back after this. You're back with Get Connected, Mike Agarbo here with John Beeler. We are in China. We've been visiting Shenzhen and uh, also uh, Hong Kong. We had a chance to visit uh, one of their manufacturing facilities, and it was spectacular. I've been to China once before, uh, and I visited a, a laptop manufacturing facility for MSI, which I thought was just incredible. This took it to another level for me, John. Uh, in the previous factory uh, that I saw, very uh, uh 
automated, but they still had many humans. This one here, uh, it was almost completely uh, robots. Yeah, the, one of the first things we saw when we came into the plant, um, after we got suited up to uh, to be in the plant, uh, was robots, uh, autonomous robots moving um, uh, boxes and uh, product around the facility uh, completely by themselves. And coming and going, um, they would pull up to the end of uh, the line and take all the boxes that were already prepped and automatically load them up and then take them off somewhere else that we couldn't see and it was just fascinating to watch this sort of uh, ballet of robots doing their thing uh, and then you know of course walking down the line we got to see you know from the very small uh, part start pointing starting point of a smartphone to the circuit board as it gets populated with these components then um, as the phone gets built it goes through multiple stages of testing and one of the most fascinating things that I saw was uh, a, a nearly complete phone was picked up by a robot put down in a very special sort of position and then another robot finger went in and pressed the power button <laughs> to turn it on so that it could actually test to make sure that the uh, the screen was working properly and then they could start um, loading the uh, operating system onto the device um, because it was basically just born. Amazing how few humans. I think uh, there were humans near the beginning to actually load the machine up with the materials. And a lot of these little circuits uh, and processors actually come on these spools of uh, tape. Yeah, it's SMD. It's surface mount um, uh, components. Basically, you know, everything from uh, LEDs to uh, capacitors, resistors, transistors, all those types of things. So small, you literally need a microscope to see some of these things, and and certainly to install them by hand. Um, but the robots, they they have multiple stages of how they apply these things, where they they actually put a sol solder paste on uh, using a stencil onto the circuit board, and then that um, allows the robot to actually pick and place, it, as they call it, uh, the components. And then it goes through as it's on the conveyor belt, it goes down an oven and bakes and basically cooks and makes your <laughs> your, your circuit board, um, and the, they do a couple circuit boards at the same time and then further down the line they actually break them apart and separate them into into things because it's just more efficient that way but it was just it was just it was mesmerizing to watch uh, this process. And this was your dream. You love robots. You, I love you, robots. This was like the favorite part of the trip yeah, for you. Yeah, this is what I was most looking forward to. Um, and unfortunately, due to obvious, um, you know, in, industrial secrets and all that kind of stuff, we weren't allowed to film uh, the whole place. But they did provide us with some interesting uh, video footage that we can use uh, that you'll see on our social networks and stuff like that later on. But, um, yeah, it's a process that I think many people don't understand and nor get to see. Um, so it was really fascinating to sort of, sort of walk down the line and, and for, for people that don't know it basically it literally is a line it's a, just a long long row in a giant room and it's all separate like each machine uh, that is on this line does uh, one task essentially and it's amazing because they basically have connected all these machines together so uh, for one thing it was mesmerizing for me that they could actually make a phone out of this through this entire line but then I thought who makes these machines who figures out how to make the machine to do this one particular task and literally there's dozens of them yeah yeah that's right um, but yeah the, I think you mentioned before that you know they make they complete one phone every 30 seconds basically uh, which is like wow <laughs> like um and 
there's about 17 people on that line in various parts. And it was interesting that the the human interaction piece was, you know, like you said, loading of the parts initially, um, probably some sort of quality control along the way. And, and then at the very end, a lot of them were like basically just inspecting before it was actually put into the package, which we thought would be something that would be so automated. Um, but it's that attention to detail to make sure that you're not putting something in with, you know, uh, some damage or uh, fingerprints and that kind of thing. Um, so not that robots have fingers, but... Well, some do. Yeah. Uh, so that uh, was a, f- a fascinating thing for me. We got to visit many campuses. Like, it's I'm boggled by the sheer scale and size of the and when we talk campuses, you know they have 188,000 employees, 188,000 worldwide. Uh, anyway, tens of thousands here in China. These buildings are enormous. Well, and that's the thing that you know when you and think marble. Of- I know where all the marble in the world goes now. <laughs> that's right. It's all here. Um, the when you think of a, a corporate headquarters, you think of like just you know you know for a big company, a big monolithic tower. Um, they have that in spades here for Huawei, um, but the sheer size and sprawl i guess and the, yeah the gardens around all these yeah. places it's very tropical here in shenzhen and uh you know most of these campuses that we went to had these beautiful sprawling gardens all around uh, uh probably be a you know great place to work it, it certainly uh it, it seemed i mean we got to have lunch in the employee cafeterias a few times and uh, just getting to see sort of people around we got to walk through some offices to go to various labs and that type of thing it looks like what you would think back home, you know, uh, what, what an office would be like. Oh, yeah, these, these, yeah, they have cubicles, but they're beautiful. Yeah, they have plants everywhere and uh, lots of fans. Uh, it's, uh, it is, like you said, it's quite tropical here. So I know, I kept joking to uh, our Huawei uh, people that were leading us around, uh, you know, so nice. I'm like, is there some, like, underground cave where most of them work, you know, in low-light <laughs> conditions? They didn't think that was very funny. No, no, no. No, no I think they take a lot of pride in, in, in how they presented uh, the company to to their employees. So it, what was interesting, too, is we went to uh, their new campus that was north of uh, Shenzhen. I forget the name of it again. It was the, the Oxhorn. Okay, this is the most amazing thing I've ever seen as far as campuses. I've been like to the Microsoft one, Yahoo back in the day, Apple, uh, Apple yeah. Google. Uh, this is modeled after Europe. When I say Europe, there's like 12 cities that I'm aware of that they have modeled different districts on this campus. There are lakes and creeks. There is a a European train going around to connect everyone. I I was waiting for It's a Small World to start playing. I know. Like, where's the roller coaster? (laughs) That's what I was thinking. It felt like Disney World. Like, it literally is so big. It's uh, And it's not just like a facade either. Like, these buildings are actually built architecturally accurately to represent those cities in Europe. And it really felt, and you know, we were just in Europe not too long ago, and it really felt like we were in parts of those those towns. Yeah, we weren't in China anymore. No, no. Um, and it was just really neat, and everything's electric. You know, even the train, every time it pulls into the station, it stops for 30 seconds to let people on and off. It's actually recharging the batteries, which is, you know, a crazy in- innovation. Yeah, the, the employees look pretty happy there. They certainly did, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it looks... It's a beautiful place to work. Um, they certainly have a lot of amenities. And, uh, you know, I remember when we were at the, at the factory, though, the umbrella parking spots. Did you did you see that? Oh, like, yeah. Just a wall of umbrellas. Everything was labeled, and it was like, that's John's umbrella, that's Mike's umbrella. <laughs> like, And it was just like hundreds of umbrellas. You could cause chaos by stealing everyone's umbrellas there. 
Yeah, I don't think they have a lost and found. No. Uh, we are uh, in China right now um, with John Beeler. We've been visiting uh, Huawei's campuses and uh, manufacturing facilities. When we come back uh, from the break, what's next for Huawei? They're still fighting with the U.S. Uh, Americans have cut them off from technology. Uh, Google won't be working on these phones uh, in a few months. So if you do currently have a, a Huawei phone or you know potentially looking at getting one, you'll want to stay tuned for the next segment, and we'll uh, dive into that. You're listening to Get Connected here on the Chorus Radio Network, back after this. You're back with Get Connected, Mike and John here. We're in China right now. We've been visiting uh, Huawei campuses and manufacturing facilities. So where do we go from here? The Americans have put uh, Huawei on their uh, entity list, basically banning U.S. companies from uh, sharing or selling technology with them. A lot of people, especially in Canada now, have purchased Huawei phones. Uh, there's an extension now, I think three months, where Google will uh, continue to update uh, you know, the operating system and its apps. But after that... Who knows, yeah. Uh, and what does that actually mean? Does that mean that the Google Play Store will stop working for you? Or will you be able to continue to get your apps and updates um, uh, f- that are separate from Google? Um, and also, <laughs> will this cascade down to some of the app developers as well? Will they start being f- fearful of offering uh, updates to their apps um, for those customers? Well, what the interesting thing with Android is that it's open source. So Google kind of has its own version of Android with the Google Play Store. There are other Android stores uh, mm-hmm. as well. Amazon is famous for having their own uh, Amazon Android store for their uh, devices. So uh, Huawei, you know, has told us that they have uh, uh, been, you know, anticipating uh, these types of scenarios. And for years, they've been working on uh, backup plans uh, as well. So we don't know exactly what those are, but I imagine there's some flavor of Android that uh, they might uh, uh, have ready to go with uh, their own store, essentially. And they, they've, they've said numerous times during the course of this trip, because we've asked them numerous times. Uh, they're not going to leave any customers out in the cold. They, they, they're going to ensure continuity, whatever that means. Uh, no one can give us a specific answer to what that meant. Um, I think the most important thing for most people, if they ha- already have a Huawei phone, is to get security updates. Um, and how, how will Huawei deliver those if Google's not uh, allowed to play with them? So my overall thoughts, John, on the trip, uh, you know, when we got to visit pretty well everywhere we got to ask anything that we uh, wanted to uh, there's obviously bigger poli- politics going on here from a security standpoint uh, as far as their phones uh, their networking gear uh, they adhere to so many different international standards for security uh, and transparency uh, it would be very difficult for the company to uh, I think incorporate any back doors uh, they would be found out uh, you know the argument though is that uh, although they are not owned by the Chinese government they have to adhere to Chinese law uh, so you know a lot of people are concerned about that yeah and that's not going to go away I don't think um, but it was interesting though this media trip seems to have um, uh, sort of a start of Huawei's opening up a little bit more and being more transparent and and uh, even being less humble about their 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 history and their and their their approach to everything, uh, which is kind of how how they've always done business. Um, the the U.S. ban has really forced them into the spotlight in a way that they didn't want to be. Um, you know, and you know, we've talked about it before. They make great products, so it's 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 uh, it's a shame that they're sort of caught in the crossfire in this political uh, w- w- trade war between the U.S. and China. 
We'll be following this story, uh, you know, in shows to come. Next week, though, we want to talk about our other experiences over here in China, visiting the big tech markets. There's unbelievable deals that you can find here. Uh, and we're going to talk about some of the crazy things that we saw and some of the crazy stuff that we bought uh, as well. This is Mike and John for Get Connected. We'll see you again next time. You've been listening to a 980 CKNW podcast. Listen live at cknw.com, the Radio Player Canada app, Tune in Amazon Alexa HD radio at 101.1 FM HD2 and on the AM dial 980 CKNW.